0: Thanks for coming back and joining us on another here of about, another episode here about faith. Uh, again, I'm uh, thankful for everybody that comes and joins me each and every week uh, that we have an episode to listen and support. And hopefully that on you, wherever you listen on or whatever platform, you take it to your social media and you like, share, subscribe to each and one of these episodes. It I would appreciate it and love it if you would just share and help me reach some of the people that. You know, I don't necessarily know to connect with or things like that. And so I would definitely appreciate it and uh, be and and just love if you would just definitely take it, you know, whether it's your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, uh, whatever it is. Just go ahead and share uh, this episode out there to your friends and hopefully it reaches someone and they will enjoy it. As well, and I know we've been talking a little bit about facts of the Bible And uh, different aspects of the Bible We talked about some of the errors and contradictions We talked about uh, the Bible being the inspired Word of God And so today we're going to Eventually I want to talk about the reliability of the Old and the New Testament But I do believe before uh, we get to that A very important step And taking a look at the reliability of the, you know, the Old and New Testament is knowing how we got the Bible in the first place. I believe that's the first step you must take. First step you must look at. So I do want to look at that first before we move forward, forward in looking at those two testaments. And I do believe it's important for us to know things like this. I know it's not a a pot that everybody looks for. I know when people come to social media, a lot of people, not everybody, a lot of people want to hear, you know, those uh, certain specific things and they want to hear about blessings and things like that. Um, And so a lot of people want to debate about certain things. I'm not here for a debate or argument. I'm just want to talk about the pure facts of what we have and, it's even important, I do believe it's important on these things if we're going to defend The Bible that we say We love uh, 1 Peter 3 and 15 Sell to sanctify the Lord God In your hearts And be ready Always to give an answer To every man that asks you a reason Of the hope that is in you With meekness And fear And this is a base scripture for branch of theology that we know as apologetics. Apologetics simply is uh, defending your faith, defending the gospel, uh, defending what it is that you believe in. Now, when I say defending, I'm not talking about going out and looking for somebody to argue with, um, argue about Conversations that lead and argue and have conversations with people that lead to absolutely nowhere I'm not talking about that because the Bible actually forbids us and tells us we shouldn't do that The Bible tells us to answer not a fool according to his folly Lest you be like him But he also tells us to answer a fool according to his folly Lest he be wise in his own eyes So sometimes there are going to be people we're going to encounter That we're going to have to have these conversations with And we're going to have to be able to answer uh, uh, Questions That they have And those questions may not only be about certain scriptures But those questions may be about the Bible itself As a whole And how they can trust What we have today is real So We have to be able to answer all questions a person has Regardless of what those questions are Concerning our faith in God Genuine questions I'm not just talking about people that have foolish questions But genuine questions That people have concerning God And His word Second Timothy two and 15 tells us to study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed. In other words, we have to be diligent and, 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 and zealous with our relationship and work for God. But remember, it's not being, it's not about arguing with foolish people or having foolish conversations with anyone. As a matter of fact, Steph, the, pre, the, the, the verse right before 2 Timothy 2 and 15, 2 and 14 teaches us not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And then the verse following, verse 15 says, tells us to avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead, to, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So we see why we should have conversations, why we shouldn't have conversations that lead nowhere. We should avoid those type of conversations at all costs. And for that, in order to do that, it means you're going to have to be led by the Holy Spirit, right? You want to follow the Holy Ghost, let the Spirit of God lead you so that you can understand and discern when the conversation is just going to head nowhere. Because there comes time when you're trying to witness to someone and all you can tell them is, hey, God bless you. And you have to walk away from those conversations. But there's going to be other times That you're going to have conversations. You're going to have to be able to defend. Everything that you can defend. Through the faith of God. You're going to have to be put to the test. Sometimes our study. And what we know is put to the test. Sometimes God is doing it. Because he's trying to lead us. To a higher place in him. And he's trying to lead us to deeper study in him. And so sometimes he allows people to cross our path. That will take us back to his word. Take us back to studying. uh, Things about him. And so we have to be able to answer all those questions. We have to understand that there are people out there for us that before we can get to their heart, we're going to have to appeal to their intellect. We're not going to just be able to jump right into their heart. They're not going to be, they're going to have questions and you're going to have to be able to understand and know how to answer those questions the right way. With love and kindness, have I drawn them? You're going to have to be kind about it, not rude and angry and nasty, and you're going to have to know how to draw them the right way. I've been plenty of times where I've even had a conversation with one person, the other person another person jumps in and the one person you're having a conversation with, they, you think you're only talking to them, you don't realize somebody else is listening and that other person ends up accepting Christ sometimes as well. So you get two for one sometimes. So I've seen, but first that all starts with being able to to, to appeal to their intellect first. Everybody's not uh, a believer of the word of God. You have atheists out there. You have people that are skeptic agnostics of the gospel that they're they're just skeptical. So you have to be able to appeal to these different types of people. Everybody's not on the same level of thinking. Uh, so you have to be able to, uh, talk to different levels of people. If you plan to win them in Christ, and we talked about it before, man, being a witness, one plant it, one water it, but it's got God that gives the increase. So I never know what stage of life I'm going to be in when I'm going out to witness or what area that I'm going to be in, or what role I'm going to be in, rather, when I'm going out to witness to someone. But I want to be prepared. Whether it's time to water or plant, I want to be prepared to do that. And I understand that today uh, this is not a typical uh, uh, like Sunday sermon when you talk about biblical history and things, how you got a Bible, how we got our Bible. It's not something that you would necessarily hear on a Sunday morning. But I believe in a setting like this is something where we can actually talk about it. And I believe it's important to know and the key to also defending your faith. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in and get started. I say jump right in. I thought i have have been talking for about five minutes. So <laughs> we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, and I think one of the questions that many people have concerning the Bible is what materials were used for its production? What materials were used for its production? I think that's a fair question, too. And I will say I heard one preacher he call it, you know for my nerds out there, this is one of those nerd moments. Um, I like things like this. I like to look at uh, when you talk about old things and I look at, I I buy things to look at. What type of boat would Jesus have been preaching in when he stood off on the boat? How would that boat may have looked? I like stuff like that. Um, You know, you know, what kind of ship would he have been on and been under the, under the bottom of the ship sleeping? I like to know things like that. I like, you know, history and, you know, so let's look at some of the writing materials, one of the uh, common, most common used writing material uh, during biblical times would have been papyrus. It comes from a papyrus plant. It was actually found uh, off the uh, shallow waters and rivers uh, in Egypt and Syria. Um, it was actually uh, produced in one of the biggest ports uh, during that time. Uh, that port was called uh, Biblos, i believe that's how you say that Uh, and that's actually assumed where we get our word for books from that's where they think we get it from this word biblos um also uh our english word paper actually comes from the word papyrus that's where. have you ever wondered how we got the word paper that's where it comes from the word papyrus and the oldest papyrus fragment actually dates back to uh 2400 bc so long before jesus was even around and even Uh, I think I will talk about a little later um, some of the stats when we get into some of the other episodes we're talking about the reliability of the New Testament and Old Testament. We'll talk about some of the stats we look at and how they determine uh, if this is a book and you can rely on and count on what you're actually reading in it. Uh, Another form uh, that uh, that was actually given for people to write on was called Parchment and then Parchment was actually given to Uh, A name was a name given to uh, writing material that was uh, made of the prepared skins of sheep, goats, uh, antelope, and other like animals. A third one was vellum. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a vellum, V-E-L-U-M. And this was the name given to calf skin. Uh, Vellum was actually often and pretty much all the time. I say often, but often dyed purple. And when they wrote on vellum, it would also be written in gold, like gold ink, so to speak. Um, that way it could be seen. Um, we actually still have some manuscripts today that you can see that are purple that were they that that use vellum. So there's a lot of things that I can actually be proving when we look at the word of God. And let's talk about some of the, I don't want to spend too much time on writing materials, but before we jump out of it, let's talk about some of the writing utensils that they use, like they use the metal stylists, Uh, and this was actually used to make incursions into clay and wax tablets, and they also had pens. I know probably like, oh, we didn't have pens until a certain time, but no, they had pens as well and these pens were used, as like we talked about, on vellum, parchment, and papyrus. So, you actually can see the mention of pens in the book of Jeremiah 8 and 8, and there's other, again, that's other writing materials that we can actually talk about but i want to keep i want to kind of move forward uh to not make this podcast too long um let's talk about how some of the divisions of the bible let's start with the old testament the first divisions of the old testament were actually made uh before the babylonian captivity in 586 bc uh we had the pentateuch which was dividing into 154 groupings and they were actually divided this way to provide lessons that would be sufficient enough for a three-year cycle of reading. And then in around 165 BC, that's when the Old Testament books uh, of the prophets, they were actually sectioned off. And I think it was around 1330 uh, after the Protestant Reformation that the Hebrew Bible or most of most of it Uh, Follow the same divisions of the Protestant Old Testament Basically the way the Old Testament is for us today Uh, I don't believe, I believe it was after the Babylonian captivity Is when the Bible was actually put, the Old Testament was actually put into verses um, For public reading, of course That's really what it was for, for public reading and interpretation, so I do appreciate the Bible being put in verses, but someone like me, it makes it easier to go. It also makes it easier, right, in public speaking, if the preacher said, take you, basically in the Old Testament, right, get me Deuteronomy or Leviticus or anything, Genesis, right, and basically Psalms, if you didn't have verses, chapter, it'll take forever for everybody to get on the same page. So verses makes it a lot easier for us in our public settings to get to, the same pages for us to get on the same page and you know what we're all talking about. When we look at the New Testament and its divisions. These divisions were made uh before the council of Nicaea. And they actually uh with the council, of, which was the council of bishops, the first council of Christian bishops, and they actually met uh in order to do this to try to put the divisions together of what happened. This probably happened around AD 250, but it wasn't until the middle of the seventeenth century, when we actually got the verses for what we have in the Book of the Bible for our for our modern for our modern Bible. So basically, what we see, we didn't get those verses and those markings until the middle of the seventeenth century. So, what's an important part? I'm talking about who when we're talking about how we got our Bible. One important thing is who decided what actually goes into the Bible. I believe that's a question that. A lot of people have, and I believe that is a very good question, a very fair question. How do we get our Bible? A lot of people wouldn't be able to answer it. Who decided? Because that's the way. That's that's the way a lot of people try to keep from believing in the Word of God. I told y'all actually what made me want to start this series is talking to a young man, and he was skeptical about what's in the Bible. How can I trust it is true? He also said that's why he doesn't read it, which. Let me know. He's about to say he was a Christian, but if how can you be a Christian? If you don't trust the Bible, don't read the Bible, um, you can't be a Christian. But that's why it's important for us to know things like this, and uh, you're able to answer and give them answers, and then bring them back to the word of God. So I can appeal to your intellect, I can appeal to those questions that you have, and then come back to The word of God. And again, wondering how we got the Bible, who decided what books of the Bible should be in the Bible. That's a very legit legit question. We're going to try to answer some of that today. Uh, We speak of how deciding which books were in the Bible. We're talking about the uh, canonicity of the Bible or canon. Now, the word canon means or comes from the word read. And read was used, A reed was used as a measuring rod And it came to mean standard So when you look at the word canon It means it comes from the word reed And a reed was used as a measuring rod Or standard for something When we talk about the canon of scripture We're basically saying that If these scriptures were measured or tested And discovered to be the word of God They met a standard that left no doubt that these were the word of God, and they became the accepted list of books that we have today. So it's important to note that the church did not choose or determine what books would be a part or considered the word of God. Rather, what happened is the church they recognized that this is these books. Or the inspired, these are the rever- these are the words of God. This is what God chose to reveal to us. This is what we should be living by. So the church did not dis- they did not find this or decide what books should read They discovered that this, hey, this is the book, this word of our God. Norman Gosler said it like this. He said, the book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is God gives the book. It's divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority, which God gives it again. Again, The people did not decide what the word of God was. They recognized that, hey, this is something different. This is the word of God. There were some tests they used to come to this conclusion. No, because why, again, it's a standard measuring rod. Canon, that's where that word comes from, a measuring rod. So they put it to the test and they were able to figure some of those things out. There were five principles. So basically five things that they t- used to test which books will be considered the word of God. And was, and that was, was it written by a prophet of God? That's a pretty good indication, right? God's mouthpiece writing a book. We look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a scribe when he spoke that would write things down. I believe his name is Baruch, uh, B-A-R-U-C-H. And you can see it, right? You can see this man being described for the prophet. So a book that was written by a prophet of God was considered to be the word of God. Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Did the, did the signs follow this person basically? that the message tell the truth about God. You see, when we look at the Bible, the Bible teaches us that God cannot con- contradict himself, nor can he utter anything that is false. Again, 2 Corinthians 1, 17 through 18 teaches us this, that God cannot contradict himself. Hebrews 6 and 18 teaches us that he can't utter anything that is false. So no book with false claims can be, con- can be considered to be the word of God. And I like this because uh, that means that anything that would have had doubt, anything that that would have been unsure about, they would have to throw it away. If if, if there was any. uh, uh, There was not any. they, They didn't have any certainty about it. They would have to throw it out. So we so so now. If they were unsure about it, they got rid of it. So now that we can, so we can also be sure that everything that we have is the true word of God. And does it come with the power of God? I think that's a big one. Does it come with the power of God? See, when you look at the word of God, the Bible talks about it's a, uh, it, it's able to divide even down to bone and marrow. The word of God is quick and it's sharper than two any two-edged sword. The word of God is living, it's moving, it's transforming. It's active. This is something we read in the Word of God, Hebrews 4 and 12. It's active. And it's it's, it's there to edify, transform your life. Did the book that that let the book do that? Did it bring some edification? Did it bring some transformation uh to your life? Did it do something like that? Did it have a power Behind this message? If it didn't have the power to change a life Then it was not the word of God The power The presence of God's transforming power Was a strong indication that a book Had God's stamp of approval And I am going to bring that to our time I thought about that Thought about that a little bit as I was preparing for this podcast, if you go to a church that doesn't believe you can be transformed by God or that you can be edified by the word of God, how can that church be a house of God? You go somewhere and they don't believe you can be transformed by God. They don't believe you can be changed by God. Doesn't believe you can be edified. Doesn't believe to be sanctified, but you can continue living in that old life, that old man, that old way that you used to live. There's no changing in the house. There's no transformation being done. How can you call that place a house of God? They weren't even calling the word of God. They wouldn't even consider it a book if you wouldn't be, if you couldn't be transformed by. it. But now we're calling buildings the house of God and nobody's life is being changed. Nobody's being transformed. Nobody's being edified. How can it be the house of God? If nobody's being transformed, nobody's being changed. I'm not telling you to leave your church. I'm just saying, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't go back there. The last point was was it accepted by the people of God? First up, so let's look at first Thessalonians 2 and 13. Paul said, we also constantly thank God. Then you receive that when you received us the word of God's message, when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. We also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. When a book was received, Collected, read, and used by the people of God, it was regarded as canonical. Not only that, when you look at other scripture, confirms it. Right? We look at Second Peter three and sixteen. Peter declares that Paul's writings, teachings, writing, there are scripture, and there are scripture that are on a par with Old Testament scripture. So let's look at some of the tests. We'll start with the New Testament that some of the we're going to apply and talk about why some books of the Bible were included in the New Testament, others weren't. Look at then we're going to go over, jump over to the Old Testament and do the same thing. So the test for the New Testament canonicity, uh, Norman Gosler said. I quote him again: In the New Testament terminology, the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles, and the prophets whom Christ promised to guide into all truth by The Holy Spirit. In the New Testament terminology, the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets whom Christ promised to God into all the truth by. The Holy Spirit. Also, it was apostolic authority and approval and not just authorship. That was the primary test. For the canon of the New Testament. So it wasn't just uh, authorship that made, authorship from an apostle that made it canon, right? Because we have some books, right? Luke writing the book of Luke, writing the acts of the apostles. We have some books that are written by people that were not apostles. So that's not just what it, what made it uh, a, a, a book that we should consider for our canon, but it was the approval. It was the approval from the apostles uh, uh, and the authority given to it from the apostles that also that made it considered for the New Testament. Also, we have to understand that the uh, apostolic authority that speaks for it, that we see in the New Testament, never detached itself from the Lord. Never detached itself from God, but it always pointed to God, the, the Lord being the one and true only Authoritative voice That all authority Should be to the Lord himself Right Jesus is the only person that came And had self-derived And self-authenticating authority He's the only one Nobody else They, they, They gave credit to Jesus Where am I getting this? I'm getting this from the Lord Jesus Christ himself This is his word The word of God and the reason now, when you look at the New Testament, the reason why they wanted to uh, figure out which which books should be included in the New Testament canon and why they were trying to do it so quickly was because, as we all know, anything good, you're going to always see some copies of it. If nobody's copying you, you're probably not doing anything good. Anytime people start copying you, people say it's a it's a form of flattery. Uh, My wife, likes to say, it's just annoying. (laughs) It's not flattering. It's kind of annoying. But I mean, the same thing, right? And as, as Christianity started to spread rapidly, you had people that were, their lives were being changed. They were willing to follow Christianity and they had questions and they wanted to know and make sure that they were living by the true word of God. But just like with anything, again, you're going to have copycats. And there begin to arise heretics. Heretics begin to jump up and uh, like Marcion in AD 140, they try to create their own canon and propagate their own canon. So for people not to fall into some kind of trap of living by the wrong thing, they needed to know and put people. these books that were circulated need to be put to the test so we can know hey this is the true word of god this is not something that came from man's mind this came from god himself this was inspired by god these are the books we should be living our life by so the early church fathers did that and they put together they met and they put together books and these books were confirmed but you have to understand that these all these books were put to the test And I said before and you can still put those These books to the test and I guarantee you Each and every one of them would pass but Also two people were dying For this if you were Caught with the sacred books Of the Christians You were being put to Death that's another way You can trust that what we Have when we think About the New Testament is the true Word of God who would Be willing to die for something Die for some false teaching right? Never heard anybody dying for a Dr. Seuss book. Never heard anybody dying for some great scholarly book. People were literally putting their lives on the line to have these sacred books of the Christian community. But around 367 AD, AD 367, there was a list provided to the churches and again, it is not that stated that, again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. These are the four Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles and Epistles, of James 1, of Peter 2, of John 3, after these, one of Jude. In addition, there are 14 Epistles of Paul, and besides, the Revelation of John, so they got together. They, they 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 put all these books to the test, and these are the books that came about. The books we have today, there are are a part of our New Testament. Let's look at some of the rejected writings before we move on to the Old Testament canon and how we got that. Uh, some of the books were the apostle, the Epistle of Pseudo Barnabas, Second Epistle of Clement teaching of the 12 teachings of the 12 apocalypse of peter the acts of paul and thecla epistle to the laodiceans there's just a few of them i know there's a few more Uh, but to quote norman godfrey again these books were not accepted as uh we've not accepted because one none of them enjoyed any more than a temporary or local recognition Most of them never did have anything more than a semi canonical status. No major canon or church council included them as inspired books of the New Testament. For the limited success was attributed, their limited success was attributed to the fact that they tried to attach themselves to references in the canonical books. Once they were able to clarify, they remained. No doubt, little to no doubt That these books were Not Canical, in other words they did not pass The test They did not stand up to the Standard So these Books were not Included, let's move over to the Old Testament and How we got the books of the Old Testament I'm going to start off with a quote by Looking at this with a quote by Mr. David Edward Ewart. It says, we must understand that no human council or rabbis ever made a book authoritative. The books we have in the Old Testament were inspired by God and had the stamp of approval on them from the beginning. Through long usage in the Jewish community, their authority was recognized. And in due time, they were added to the collection of canonical Book. so let's look at the books uh that we have in our old testament canon and why we have them in there. it was thought to as early that the old testament canon was completed as early as uh 4th century bc and the reason for this was that the jews themselves believed that the voice of god had had actually ceased to speak to them directly uh this is that period between the old and new testament that we call the intertestamental period where there was no voice or no voice crying out in the like crying out from god so god was not speaking directly so they figured that every book that was written after this period was not considered to be the word of god it may be a good book to read it may contain some history but it was not considered to be the actual word of god so when you look at books like first and second maccabees that talks about that period uh during that period of what happened between uh, uh, uh the period of the old testament and the new testament when we open back up uh it's a, maybe a good read to give us some history on things but it's not the word of god let's look at a few nerd stats here the books of the hebrew bible are traditionally 24 in number and arranged in three divisions these three divisions are the law, the prophets, and the writing. Again, the books of the Hebrew Bible are 24 in number, and they are divided into three, right? Three divisions. They have three divisions, the prophets, the law, and the writings, right? So, when we look at that, we have the books of the Hebrew Bible. And I know when we think about our Old Testament uh, book we say you would say hey well we have more books than that so obviously they're missing some books no they're not missing any books the thing about it is we separate some books into two that they have one i'm pretty sure you already know what those books are first and second samuel first second kings chronicles and ezra and neobar is also separated into two books when those are considered one book in the hebrew bible also we make separate books out of the mind of prophets so that's why uh, we have differences when it comes to the number of books. So Christ even bears witness to the Old Testament canon. Let's look at this. Let's look at scripture. I like because scripture doesn't contradict itself. It testifies of itself and it teaches you what you should consider is true. Luke 24 and 44, Jesus in the upper room, he's telling his disciples, he tells them that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me, again, Jesus in the upper room talking to his disciples, he tells them in Luke 24 and 44, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And with those few words, Jesus is concern, c- confirmed everything that will be in the Hebrew Bible when we look at it. Right, he he tells us. Right, remember what we said: the Hebrew Bible is right. It's the law. It goes Jesus confirm it. The law, right? The prophets. Jesus says the same thing, and the Psalms. And I know you may say, well, that's not that's not the writings, right? But Psalms is the first book in the writings. It's also the long book, so G, the longest book in that in the writings. So here Jesus goes: the the law, the the prophets. And the Psalms, and writings. He confirms everything himself, which is the true word of God. So anything that's not considered in that, you have to throw it out. Probably one of the most known Jewish historians, Josephus, actually spoke about the threefold division of the Hebrew Bible. And he says this, I quote him, and how firmly we have given credit to those books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For doing so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them or take anything from them or to make any change in them. But it becomes natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem those books, to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them. And if occasion be willing to die, willingly to die for them this historian, this Jewish historian is saying through ages we look at these books that we have in our Hebrew Bible as divine and so they're so divine that we live by them from birth and if it comes to it we'll die for it definitely want to get love the word of God that much That every day I live by the word of God. That should be our goal. We live by the whole word of God. And if it came down to it, without a doubt, I would be willing to die for it. My, what a testimony to say that. I believe that this is God's word. That if it came to it, I'll give my life for it. When you look at the New Testament, there are some, there are many scriptures that point to the Old Testament and confirm it as sacred scripture. I believe it's John 5 and 39, which talks about as scripture has said, and a statement like that alone is more than enough to confirm a whole book of the Bible. When we look at Jesus, Jesus himself does it again, right? He confirms a whole book of the Bible. He says, for man shall not, he's going through his fasting time. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. It's written, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. That whole book right there had just been confirmed simple by simply by Jesus. There are some other writings that you have people out there. Apostles Or quotes <laughs> Who try to tell people that they should live by If you know, you know these books are called the Apocrypha But if you notice I have not Jesus never confirmed these books No other Apostles or anybody ever quoted these books. Oh, they may have been made mention of that they were circulating but none of them had ever been quoted as being the word of God. In other words, something we should live by. What are these books? These books, these they consist of books added to the Old Testament, and New Testament by the Roman Catholic Church. Nobody, none of the early church fathers, nobody ever considered these to be books of the canon. Why not? Why were they not considered canonical? Because they abound in historical and geographical inaccuracies. They have legitimate errors that don't make sense. Not like what we talked about in the errors and contradictions video, talking about what we have today. No, these are, or they have a lot of errors that don't make sense. They also teach doctrines that are false and foster practices that are at odds with inspired scripture. Scripture is not going to be at odds with Scripture. Remember, we said it: God does not contradict Himself or speak anything that's false. So, if it does that, it cannot be considered the Word of God. Also, they display uh, artificiality of subject subject matter. In other words, they talk; they literally talk of fairy tales, things that cannot be proven true or have not been proven true. Fairy tales made-up stories, clearly made-up stories. Does not keep with the style of inspired scripture. It does not stand up to the test. Remember we said, the point—the scriptures that are, that, are, that are included in the canon, canon meaning read, comes from the root word read, read meaning measuring rod or standard. It does not meet the standard, what we have when we look at inspired scripture. And they lack distinctive elements that give in genuine scripture uh, that gives genuine scripture its divine character. Like the prophet, they, they, they don't they don't they don't change your life, they don't move. It's not alive. It doesn't have any spirit behind it. The letter killer, but the spirit makes it alive. It doesn't carry any divine weight. Does not carry any. A authority does not transform. It does not do any of this. It's not the divine word of God. You can read it. it; may have some good read; may have some good sayings in it, but it cannot be contributed as the word of God. You cannot put it against the test, and it passes. So, when we look at all of this, we look at. The study of this we understand that no christian should be uh, uh, lack any confidence when it comes to the word of god david dockery said it like this no christian should no christian confident in the providential working of his god and informed about the true nature of canonicity of his word should be disturbed about the dependability of the bible we now possess in other words you can have all the confidence in the world And out of this world that the Bible you now possess is the inspired word of God. Which is a good thing, right? Because when I go through my trials, when I go through my tribulations, when I go through my persecution, now I can look to scripture and I can stand on it and know that God is going to perform it. He's going to back it up because what I'm reading is his word. And what did he say about his word? He said when he sends it out, it won't return into him void. He says that he looks over, he hastens over to perform it. He wants to bring to pass his word. He says before... Uh, Heaven and earth earth shall pass away Before one one tilt of his word shall fail So I can know that what I can have faith in What I'm reading is the word of God I can stand on it I can believe in it I can trust in it That God is going to perform everything that he says So even when I'm going through my own little situation I can have faith in God because he, what he said, he says he'll perform it. He'll bring it to pass. If I need to be healed, I can trust that what I read in the Bible is real, that God will heal me. If I need to be, uh, I need a financial breakthrough. I can know that the cattle on a thousand hills is the Lord and God will uh, bless my life according to his riches. Can trust the word of God how do we get our Bible this is how we can be sure that what we have is the true word of God next we're going to talk about the reliability of the old and the new testament I want to thank you for listening to today's episode and until next time God bless you God keep you we're going to go ahead and roll the outro this has been another episode of the about faith podcast with me your host TJ hart. I want to thank you for tuning in. Man, this show wouldn't be what it is if it wasn't for you. So why don't you go ahead and hit that subscribe button and on all your social media platforms, share it with your friends. And until next time, be blessed.